Well, our time in the Word tonight is Bible question and answer, and if you've been here for Bible Q&A on a regular basis, then you know that it's very common for youngsters to turn in their questions. They always, it's really thrilling for me on Sunday mornings to see these little ones come up and they have their question in their hand and they're so excited uh, to give it to me and hope that I will answer it. And, and uh, there's always at least two or three, and that's the same, uh, same tonight, same case tonight. And so just to lead in before we jump right in, I thought I would uh, share with you some letters that youngsters have written to their pastors uh, through the years. And these will uh, give you just an idea of of just some of the things that I get almost every Sunday, little notes from from youngsters, even when it's not Q&A. So the first one says, Dear Pastor, I know God loves everybody, but he never met my sister. Yours sincerely, Arnold, age 8. Dear Pastor, Please say in your sermon that Peter Peterson has been a good boy all week. I am Peter Peterson. (laughs) Sincerely, Pete, age nine. Dear Pastor, my father should be a minister. Every day he gives us a sermon about something. Robert Anderson, age 11. Dear Pastor, I'm sorry I can't leave more money in the plate, but my father didn't didn't give me a raise in my allowance. Could you have a sermon about a raise in my allowance? Love, Patty, age 10. Dear Pastor, my mother is very religious. She goes to play bingo at church every week, even if she has a cold. Yours truly, Annette, age nine. Dear Pastor, I would like to go to heaven someday because I know my brother won't be there. Stephen, age eight. I'm just reading them, okay? Dear Pastor, I think a lot more people would come to your church if you moved it to Disneyland. Lauren, age nine. Dear Pastor, I liked your sermon where you said that good health is more important than money, but I still want to raise in my allowance. Sincerely, Eleanor, age 12. Dear Pastor, please pray for all the airline pilots. I am flying to California tomorrow. Lori, age 10. Dear Pastor, I hope to go to heaven someday but later than sooner. Love, Ellen, age nine. Dear Pastor, please say a prayer for our Little League team. We need God's help or a new pitcher. Thank you. (laughs) Alexander, age 10. Dear Pastor, my father says I should learn the Ten Commandments, but I don't think I want to because we have enough rules already in my house. Joshua, age 10. Dear Pastor, why does God, who, no, dear Pastor, who does God pray to? Is there a God for God? Sincerely, Christopher, age nine. Dear pastor, are there any devils on earth? I think there may be one in my class. Carla, age 10. (laughs) Dear pastor, I liked your sermon on Sunday, especially when it was finished. Ralph, (laughs) age 11. And then this one, dear pastor, how does God know the good people from the bad people? Do you tell him or does he read about it in the newspaper? Sincerely, Marie, age nine. And I do get uh, notes like that very often, and so I thought you might enjoy just hearing some of those. That, uh, that, uh, th- those weren't actual ones that came to me, but I get notes just like that. But someone handed me that article, and I thought it was uh, good for just an awareness of how the little ones think sometimes. All right, with that in mind, let's go ahead and take our Bibles and prepare to jump into our Q&A. Uh, the first one, we don't have a text per se to go to, so you can just be open your Bible. The question says this, for tonight, please explain the importance or not of Lent. 
Uh, as you know, Lent is a very common practice in a lot of uh, Christian religions. Uh, where did it come from? Uh, I mentioned this a few weeks ago in uh, the Sunday night message on Revelation 17, talking about the Babylonian system, the Babylonian church that's going to be destroyed in the end times. Uh, the whole system is called Babylon there in Revelation 17 because it will be the accomplishment of what the human race tried to do back in Genesis 11 when they pr- tried to build the city of Babylon as a rival empire and religion in place of the true God. So this entire Babylonian system began in Genesis 11 about 5,000 years ago under the leadership of a man named Nimrod. Extra-biblical sources indicate that the wife of Nimrod became the head of the Babylonian mysteries, which consisted of religious rites that were a part of the worship of idols in Babylon. Her name was Semiramis, and she supposedly gave birth to a son, Tammuz, who claimed to be a savior and the fulfillment of the promise that was given to Eve in Genesis 3.15. Interestingly, Semiramis said that Tammuz was virgin-born. She said she became impregnated by a sunbeam. Now, that was the beginning of this counterfeit, anti-God Babylonian religion. As the story goes, Tammuz was eventually killed by a wild boar. Semiramis cried for 40 days until Tammuz was eventually raised from the dead. And that, in answer to your question, is where the practice of Lent comes from. Now, I know it has sort of been Christianized and it's sort of been uh, uh, spiritualized as a time of sacrifice where you give up something, etc., and all of that. But, but the fact of the matter is that's where it comes from. So in answer to your question, please explain the importance or not of Lent. It's not a biblical issue, not a biblical practice. Uh, it, it, its source goes back to these uh, pagan mystery religions of, of ancient Babylon and the Tower of Babel and all of that. So uh, it's just another illustration of, of uh, Satan getting his stuff into a religion. So, in answer to your question, is Lent important? It's, it's not, nothing at all in Scripture. There's nothing about it that's, that's biblical. Now, if someone wants to do it, I'm not suggesting it's wrong necessarily. If someone says, well, I'm going to give up something or sacrifice something, etc., for these 40 days, but just you need to understand where it comes from and what its source is, etc. All right, for the next question, let's turn over to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 22. Revelation 22, this question's really not on this passage, but, but this passage may help give us a little insight. And this is one of the questions from a youngster, a little, a little one. Uh, this little one asks, are there birthdays in heaven? And, um, you know, at first you hear that and you think, well, that's kind of a cute question. Uh, there, there aren't birthdays in heaven, but we really don't have anything in Scripture that says there aren't birthdays in heaven. So I don't know for sure. There, there may be or may not be, but two things related to this that I do know. Number one, there will be, contrary to popular thinking among Christians, there will be time in heaven. Now certainly eternity is forever, it's eternal, but that doesn't mean there is not the reckoning of time. And in Revelation 22, as John is giving a description of the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the eternal state, he says this, Verse 22, in the middle of its street, verse 2 of chapter 22, in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And this is in the eternal state. 
And then the leaves are the tree, uh, the leaves of the tree were for the healing, not healing in the sense of sickness. This is Greek word therapeuo. We get our English word therapeutic, something that's very invigorating or refreshing. The leaves are for the invigorating, the refreshing of the nations. So here, there's the indication that there will be the continuation of time. That shouldn't surprise us because if you've ever read Revelation 21 and 22, it also talks about sp- specific space, dimensions, north, south, east, west, etc. So uh, again, contrary to popular opinion, uh, heaven or eternity is not going to be just an ethereal state where you just float around, you know, uh, sort of on a cloud, strumming a little harp. You've got a diaper on, and that's what it, it's how it's often depicted. It's not going to be heaven. It's not going to be that way at all. There's going to be streets, streets of gold. There's going to be a city. There's going to be walls, and it's north, south, east, west, time, etc. But it's all in a perfected state and in, a, in an amazing state. So uh, two things I do know related to your question. I don't know if there will be birthdays in heaven, but I do know there will be time in heaven. So, I don't know, possible that if time's reckoned, there may be some connection there. But here's the important point. I know this. Whether or not there are birthdays in heaven, you won't be disappointed. That's what's important to understand. In fact, if you read Revelation 21 and 22, it's obvious that John, of course, he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, but he is just trying to pile up adjectives and adverbs and descriptive phrases to try to tell us how incredible existence is going to be in the new heaven, the new earth, the eternal state. Trying to somehow explain how invigorating, how magnanimous life and existence will be. So you won't be disappointed in heaven. That's a thought that all of us should put from our minds. Because not only, you know, we may read a question like this from a little one, say, oh, isn't that sweet? Well, are they going to be disappointed if you say there aren't birthdays in heaven? But you know, a lot of adults have concepts about heaven that are, that are erroneous, and they think they're going to be disappointed. Frankly, there are a lot of adults who think they're going to be disappointed. They think, well, in heaven, we're not going to have this, or it won't be that. And, and uh, very common, if, if they'll be honest, for a lot of people to think they're going to be disappointed in some way because of what will be there or won't be there. So erase that from your thinking. Uh, Attack that in your thinking. You won't be disappointed. Our next question, we go from Revelation back to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And the question is on verse 28. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You see the problem immediately. The kingdom has not come, and all the disciples are dead. The disciples were the ones standing around. So the question is, what is the meaning of this verse, and what is the connotation of the Greek word used for coming here? Well, I could answer this from Matthew 16, but let me have us turn over to the parallel account in Mark's gospel. So turn over to Mark chapter 9. They're basically the same, but I'll show you why. There's a reason why I want us to look at it in Mark's gospel, because it may help unlock this little dilemma that a lot of people have faced when they are reading their devotions and they're reading a chapter of Scripture for the day and they read Matthew 16 and they come to the end of the chapter and it closes out and they have a problem because they've just closed their Bible, they finished their Bible reading Matthew 16 and they don't know what the answer is. But if you read it in Mark's account, it's interesting. Uh, what's going on in Matthew, by the way, is probably a little bit of an unfortunate chapter division. 
You're aware of the fact that the chapter divisions are not inspired. They weren't in the Bible when, they were origi- when the Scripture was originally written. They were placed in much later. I mean, hundreds of years later. Now, they're very helpful. I'm not putting them down. A chapter and verse divisions are extremely helpful in finding your place and having Bible studies and, and, and making note of references, but they're not inspired. And if you look in Mark 9, uh, we're given maybe a little better clue as to what's going on here because in Mark 9, verse 1, Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. He was transfigured before them. And, of course, this is the transfiguration. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, etc., etc. Interestingly, in all three synoptics, the synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John doesn't record the transfiguration. In all three synoptics, this promise that's in 1628, where the question is focused, in all three synoptics, this promise precedes the transfiguration, immediately precedes the transfiguration, which gives us a clue that the transfiguration is actually the fulfillment of the promise. And not only that, the term kingdom back there in Matthew 16:28 could justifiably be translated royal splendor. So there are some standing here who will not taste death until you see the Son of Man in his royal splendor. And when do they see him in his royal splendor? Six days later. Of course, it was Peter, James, and John. It wasn't all of them. And that's why he said there are some of you, not all, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until you see the Son of Man in his royal splendor. And that was fulfilled six days later when Jesus was transfigured before them and displayed the glory, the royal splendor that he will have when he comes back to establish his kingdom. So it's clear that the synoptic writers are trying to connect that in our minds. But what you have in Matthew 16, which raises the problem, is that chapter break. Seems like it's the end of the story, 1628, and you're left hanging. Well, everybody's dead and nobody's, this promise wasn't fulfilled. All right, next question. Let's go back to uh, Genesis and Exodus. We need to compare a couple passages. So uh, Genesis 22, and hold your finger there when you get Genesis 22, and then uh, Exodus 6. So those are the two passages we want to look at. All right, Genesis 22, and once you get that, you can turn to Exodus Exodus chapter 6, all right? Genesis 22, hold your finger there, and then turn to Exodus chapter 6. We're going to read the passage in Exodus because that's where the question is. It's a good question. It's one that I I know that a number of Christians have wrestled with. Uh, So in Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, uh, verse 2, let's begin there. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Now, notice, I'm almost certain that in every one of our English translations, the word Lord there is going to be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is the translator's way of letting us know that this is the Hebrew word Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, or if you stick the vowels in, which Hebrew doesn't have vowels, but they are inserted sometimes, um, Y-H-W-H, all in caps, and that's why this is all in caps, L-O-R-D, all right? So Yahweh, this is the personal name of God. So God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. 
Now, this is very similar to what happens back in Exodus 3. If you remember when God appeared to Moses, uh, just back up to Exodus 3, and uh, this is when God is commissioning Moses, you remember, and he says, well, they're not going to listen to me. You know, who should I say uh, sent them, etc.? Verse 13, Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel, say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And the, that, the, the, that's interesting translation, I am who I am, because the words Yahweh, the personal name of God, is also uh, related to or basically the verb of being, I will be or I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And here in this chapter, again, it almost sounds like if you read it, it almost sounds like God is for the first time revealing his name to Moses. So the question, again, it's a good one. Please explain Genesis twenty two fourteen in light of these statements here in Exodus 3 and Exodus 6. So go back to uh, Genesis 22. And this is the account of Abraham offering his son Isaac. And you remember the story. Abraham was about to kill his son. God intervened and, and withheld him from doing that. And God provided a ram, etc. Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. That's, I think, probably most English translations. The Lord will provide. Literally, in Hebrew, that's Yahweh Yaira. Now, in English, most English Christians who know this will say Jehovah Jaira, because that's from Hebrew to German to English, and it comes out as Jehovah Jaira. But in Hebrew, it's Yahweh Yaira, and it means literally, the Yahweh will see to it. So he named that place Yahweh will see to it. Yahweh, and you understand, will see to it. He'll He'll see to it, see to what's needed. He will provide. So Yahweh will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So all the way back here, you have Yahweh, Yaira. And not only that, you can go back further. If you go back to Genesis 13, 4, go back a few pages to Genesis 13, and it says... Um, the last phrase in Genesis 13, 4, and there Abram called on the name of, now notice in your Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So Abram called on the name of Yahweh. So we do know that the name, the personal name of God was known all the way back in Genesis. So what is Exodus 6 saying? What is God saying? That that's not how I was known to them. Well, the patriarchs did know God's name, Yahweh, not only is Genesis 22, but as far back as Genesis 13. But if you, will just, if you will just trace this or read it through, you will notice that he mainly appeared to them as El Shaddai in Hebrew, God Almighty. The, the one he, provi- he, he presented himself as the one who provides, the one who sustains. He had not, he had not displayed himself primarily by the name Yahweh. Now, the emphasis of Yahweh, El Shaddai, God the Almighty, the one who provides or the one who sustains. But if you look at how he revealed himself to Moses 
and defined himself when he made his name known, you will see that the emphasis of Yahweh, the personal name of God, is the promise keeper, the one personally related to his people and the one who would redeem his people. So that's what's going on in Exodus. He is saying, they didn't know me. It's not that they didn't know the name Yahweh, but they didn't know me as the one who would redeem his people. That's not, but when we come to Exodus, it makes sense. That's how they know him, because what's that about? About God redeeming his people. So that's what both uh, Exodus 3 and Exodus 6 are saying, is that God is saying, my name Yahweh, though it was used back there, the patriarchs were aware of it. They didn't know the significance of it. They didn't know the meaning of it. They certainly didn't know the fullness of it. Uh, I was to them God Almighty, the one who provides, the one who sustains. But now they're going to know me as a result of the Exodus as the one who's personally related to his people and the one who redeems his people. So that's the connection between the, the statement in Exodus and those occurrences back in Genesis. All right, we're in Hebrew Scripture, so let's turn over to 1 Kings chapter 7. 1 Kings chapter 7. And this is when Solomon is building the temple and his own house and so forth. And we read down in verse 21. Then he set up the pillars by the vestibule of the temple... He set up the pillar on the right and called its name. Again, our English here is going to say, yours is probably J-A-C-H-I-N. There's really not a J in Hebrew. It would be a, a Y, Yachin. Uh, and he set up the pillar on the left and called its name Boaz. So the question is this. Why does Solomon name his pillars in 1 Kings 7.21? You may wonder that. I mean, we don't name, you know, like... This wall, we're going to name this, and this, you know, door entrance, etc. Why would he do that? And the answer is this, because they weren't merely, merely pillars. They were actually monuments. They were monuments of God's security and strength. And that comes out if you understand the names or the meaning of these names he gave them. Uh, Yaqin means he, Yahweh, establishes. Now put this in the context. Solomon's building the temple, and Yahweh has established a name, a place for himself. He's no longer going to be, you know, sort of transported around in tents, the Ark of the Covenant. Yahweh establishes. He had established a place for himself. He had established his people Israel. And in this context, under Solomon, they had no enemies. It was a time of peace. Yahweh has established his own name, his place, and his people. And then Boaz means, in the, the Hebrew word here, Boaz, means in him, in Yahweh again, in him is strength. So again, it's really a powerful imagery in the context of the temple. And uh, these, these pillars were set up. They were, uh, there's a, a long, I probably should have backed up to like verse 15 because it's amazing how much text is given just to describe these pillars. They were obviously significant. Uh, an extensive description is given of them because, as I said, they weren't merely pillars. They were actually monuments with significance, with meaning. Yahweh establishes and in him is strength. All right, uh, next question. This one, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is not on this, but I want to use this passage to illustrate it. It's uh, kind of a... Really, this is kind of a heart-wrenching question. Actually, I know the dear lady who submitted it and uh, appreciate that she did and she wanted to turn it, but she says this. Um, 
why did God, she lost her husband recently. Why did God take my husband at this time? Is it punishment for me for something I have done or not done? And of course, probably most of us in this room have been through something like this. You go through an extremely hard time and it does raise those questions. What am I missing? Am I, am I missing? Is the Lord doing this to get my attention? Is this punishment? I mean, this is, I mean, this is life. This is life for a lot of people when you have extreme hurt, extreme loss, etc. And so in answer to this question, why did God take my husband? Is it punishment for me for something I have done or not done? And my answer is this. Uh, I can't speak for God if there's not chapter and verse. In other words, I, you know, nobody can really speak. They may pretend to speak for God, but unless you have chapter and verse, you can't say, well, God did this because, you know, God caused that plane to crash because of this, or God caused that hurricane because of this. Nobody, I mean, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who can give him instruction? Who, you know, that's, my ways are so much higher than your ways. So, though a lot of Christians foolishly think they can speak for God, you can't speak for God. You don't know why God does what he does. So I can't speak for God. But knowing you, that is, I'm addressing this to the lady who, knowing you, I can confidently say this was not for punishment for something you've done or not done. And here's the reason. I can give chapter and verse for this. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, of course, the context here is the Lord's table and how we're supposed to examine ourselves every time we come to the Lord's table. But Paul, when he's teaching on that, he expands it. He broadens the uh, the uh, principle to go beyond just at the Lord's table. He says, uh, of course, in, in, in Corinth, verse 30, this was going, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. That is, there were so many in the Corinthian church who were, um, you know, coming to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner and so forth. And then he says this, a- after he has talked about the importance of examining yourself, verse 31, here's the key verse, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. In other words, what Paul is saying there, he's giving sort of an axiomatic principle. If we make it a practice in our lives to judge, evaluate, critique ourselves. In other words, if we we are regularly going, we're in the practice of going to the Lord and saying, Lord, I want to grow in you. I want to see what I need to see. If there's something in my life that's wrong, point it out to me. Help me see it. Uh, If there's something I'm not doing that I should be doing, I want to do it. If there's something I I shouldn't be doing, I want to do it. That should just be a regular aspect of the Christian life. And that's what Paul says here. If, if that's the way we live life, the Lord doesn't have to step in and chasten us. When as a child of God, we just kind of go through life and we don't stop and think about how we should be living. And maybe we are doing things we shouldn't be doing or not doing what we ought to be doing. And we're, we don't really care. We're just kind of living our life. Then the Lord has to step in and chasten and say, whoa, let me get your attention here. But if we are doing that, if that's the way we live life, with a transparency before God and an openness and a, and, and a crying out to God, God, show me, show me in my life, then we can be confident that when this kind of thing happens, we don't have to say, oh, you know, I, I've, I've been trying to walk with, I've really been in humility and a tender heart, um, but now God killed my husband because of something I've done or not done. So that's why I say, knowing you, and I'm addressing now the lady, who, uh, knowing the way you live the Christian life, I don't, of course, I don't know your heart. Nobody knows anybody else's heart. But just watching you for years and watching that your life was one that that was the way you live. Lord, I just want to see. If I need to change something, I want to change it. If there's something I ought to be doing, I, I want to do it. If there's something I'm doing that I shouldn't be, I want to get it out of my life. Then 
Paul says here, you know, if that's the way we live, then the Lord doesn't have to step in and chase it. So I would encourage you to uh, dismiss that thought from your mind, that the reason God took your husband is because it's a punishment for you. That, that would be something paralyzing for you spiritually, emotionally, and not helpful. As I said, many, many of us have been there through heartaches and tragedies of life. So I appreciate your transparency and, and willingness to open up and, and ask that question. Next question is way back in Hebrew Scripture, Leviticus 17. Leviticus 17. And several times through this chapter, we have this statement made, and I think most English translations render the same. They talk about someone being cut off. For example, uh, 17.4. Look at 17.4. It talks about, or verse 3, Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or lamb or goat in the camp, or who kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Down in verse 9, you have a similar statement. Or verse 8, Also you shall say to them, Whatever man of the house of Israel, or of the stranger, strangers who dwell among you, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice, and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meaning, to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. You have the same statement down in verse 14. You have it in chapter 20, verse 17. Chapter 20, verse 18. It's a very common expression uh, throughout the book of Leviticus. And so the question is this. uh, Throughout the law, the penalty for many sins is that the offender would be cut off. Is this the same thing as the death penalty, excommunication, or something else? If it does mean excommunication... Could such a person ever be restored if he or she repented? You know, that's really an interesting question because uh, this afternoon I just looked through some, some different sources and, um, you know, the commentators are somewhat divided on this because you don't have a statement saying he shall be cut off, which means you shall execute him. He shall be cut off, which means you need to banish him from the nation. It's just he'll be cut off. And so as a result, there are three, three suggestions as to what is being described by that phrase. Uh, one I really hadn't thought of, but I think it, uh, it's a viable option. Uh, some commentators suggest that this is a reference to direct divine destruction. In other words, that God himself, the person does this, that God himself, as he did with like Korah, Datham, and Abiram, uh, or Nadab and Abihu, or whatever, God stepped in and just killed them took their life. So that wasn't uncommon in this, this time period. Uh, so that's one option. Maybe it's referring to direct divine destruction, that the person who does this, God will step in and end that person's life. The second one, as you've mentioned here, second option is that this is a reference to judicial execution. In other words, God was giving the law saying, if the person does this, he shall be cut off. That is, you need to execute him. Like the the man who was found gathering sticks on the Sabbath after it had been made clear no work to be, was to be done on the Sabbath. You remember? They took the guy aside until they found out what they were supposed to do. They sought the Lord, and the Lord said he's to be put to death, and they put him to death. So uh, judicial execution. The other possibility is, as you've indicated, banishment by God from the nation. 
so that he's cut off from his people. That is, he's banished away from the people of God. Now, regardless of which, three, or which of these three it is referring to in the context, there is nothing, at least when I was reading through it this afternoon, I never found anything in the Mosaic law, the Levitical law, that talked about a restoration. Now, there are a lot of passages that talk about, you know, if a man does this, he, can re- he, needs, to be, he needs to restore fourfold, and then he can be restored, etc. So there are a lot of occasions where God says, with this sin, you can do this, you can make payment, you can, you know, do whatever you need to do. Uh, but for these, that, that phrase, that idea doesn't occur. So I take it that these, these particular statements where you have that about being cut off, it's either direct divine destruction judicial execution by the the nation or the leaders of the nation or banishment by God from the nation and these things are not things that you could sort of repent of, be restored, etc. Because I couldn't find a phrase that talked about it in relation to these. As I said, there are many where that was an option but not these where that phrase occurs. All right, next question. This is is from a a youngster, a little one, just wrestling with uh, why does God have to watch us if he knows what is going to be happening. If God knows, then does he even need to watch? You know, it's sort of like, hey, if you've seen the movie, why watch it? You've seen it several times. You know what's going to happen, right? Well, really good question. I'm glad you're wrestling with this. Um, You know, the Scripture uses a lot of expressions that are expressions to help us understand or relate to God, but that we shouldn't push them beyond their intention. For example, you have 2 Chronicles 69. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro. Well, let me tell you. God is not sitting up in heaven going like this. Okay? He doesn't, do, he doesn't need to do that. You know, the arm of the Lord is not shortened so he can't save. You know, the ear of the Lord is not open to the cry of the wicked. Well, God doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have ears. He doesn't have arms. Because Jesus said very specifically in John 4, 24, God is spirit. He's a spirit being. So those are expressions. Those have a technical term in theology, by the way. And uh, for this, the youngster who's, who asked this question, the little one, you're not going to be able to remember this term, but maybe your mom or dad will help you. But those terms that describe God as human form are called in theology anthropomorphisms. So anthropos, man, morphe, form, describing God with human form. Okay? But again, God doesn't have ears, but he does hear. He doesn't have eyes, but he does see. He doesn't have an arm, but he does save. He does deliver. Okay? So sometimes the Bible uses anthropomorphisms. Sometimes the Bible uses anthropopathisms. And that's a theological term that just says describing God with emotional terms that we have as humans. For example, some translations of Genesis 6. Now, most of our newer ones kind of massage this and have moved it out of the language. But some of the translations of Genesis 6, the context of the flood, say this. God, when he looked around and saw all the wickedness on the hu- uh, of the human race on planet Earth, God repented that he made man. Well, let me assure you, God has never repented of anything. God has never had any second thoughts. But God is often described with these phrases uh, that, that are anthropopathisms, that is, describing God. The, the, the author of Genesis, by using that phrase, wants us to understand the genuine, the genuine heartache, the genuine grief. I'm not implying now that just because there are anthropopathisms that God doesn't have emotions. He does, does have emotions, but he doesn't repent. 
So it is trying to, it is using a very extreme or very intense phrase to talk about the fact that God was so deeply grieved when he saw the wickedness of man. But to push that anthropopathism, God repented to its, to push it that far and take it that way would be, would be a mistake. So all that to say this, when answering your question, when the Bible talks about God watching us, you're right. He doesn't really have to watch us as if he doesn't know what's going to happen and he needs to watch in case something's about to happen he didn't foresee and, you know, things are going to spiral out of control. But it's, it's, it's God's way of saying that God cares for his people. It is true that God knows what is going to happen, but he wants to make sure that we understand. Here's the key point. He wants to make sure that we understand that he isn't passive. He isn't just letting things happen. He's in control. He's, in, he's involved. We are not deists. We don't believe in a deist view of God. That is, that God created this universe, wound it up like a clock, stuck it out there sort of hanging in space, and backed off, and he just lets things go. That's, that's deism. We're, we're not deists. We believe in a God who is both imminent and transcendent. That's, those are theological terms. Transcendent means he's distinct from his creation, contrary to pantheism, which says God is his creation. So scripture teaches that God is transcendent, separate or distinct from his creation, but he's imminent, involved in his creation. Both of those are true of God, separate from, involved in. So that's why Scripture talks about God watching us, because God is involved. And he's not just passively observing, he is involved. So great question, glad you asked it, and, uh, and sorry for using those big terms. Your, your mom or dad will help you sort that out, uh, the little one that, that asked that. All right, Matthew chapter 5 for the, the next question. Matthew chapter 5. This is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 22, or verse 23, I'm sorry. Verse 23, uh, Jesus said, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, that's, of course, a a synonym for worship. In that day, it was actually, under Old Testament law, you would bring a gift to the altar, but it's synonymous with coming to worship. So, If you bring your gift to the altar, if you're coming to worship, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Here's the question. Does Matthew 5, 23 and 24, apply to someone involved in a ministry? Should this person step out of ministry until reconciliation has taken place with the brother with whom there is a conflict. So several facets to that question. So let me just take them one at a time. First of all, does this apply to someone involved in a ministry? The answer to that question is obviously yes, because it applies to all believers. It really doesn't matter if it's someone in ministry or someone who just sort of attends church and never does anything, someone in leadership, or doesn't, doesn't matter. It's just to all, this is the Lord's instruction to us as his people. Anyone who's a child of God, this is what the Lord says. If you come to worship and you remember that there's a conflict, you, you, it, it's more important for you to go be reconciled than to just continue on with your worship. Stop right in the middle if you have to. Go seek to be reconciled. All right? So now your second question, should this person step out of ministry until reconciliation 
has taken place? And I, let me answer that question with both a no first and a yes, okay? Yes, if the person is unwilling to try to reconcile, then yes, because, I mean, that's sin. If you just, if you know what the Lord says and you're not willing to do it, then sure, you shouldn't be in ministry, you shouldn't be in leadership or whatever. So for any Christian, it's wrong to know what the Lord says, understand it, and just say, I'm not going to do it. So if that were the case, absolutely the person should step out of ministry. But no, I would say this doesn't mean that if you're in a conflict, if you have a conflict, and all of a sudden, you, you know, you come to worship, and you're sitting in church on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night, and you realize, oh, man, that brother is, there's a conflict there. That doesn't mean, oh, I need to, let's see, tomorrow morning I need to resign from the deacon board, and then tomorrow night I need to go to, no. Jesus just says, go to the, your brother. Just go take care of it. Deal with it. Uh, again, if you're unwilling to, then that's wrong. That's disobedience. But you don't need to sort of take steps, well, I need to step out of this until I go. Just go. Go immediately. That's, in fact, that's Jesus' point. That's the reason he words it this way. He uses a rather shocking example. You mean something as important as worship should sort of take second place to this? Yes, that's how important this is. Uh, but let me hasten to add a very important point. Uh, turn over with me from here to Romans 12. Romans chapter 12. And I, I'm not sure from the way the question was asked if this is what is in mind. So I want to I try to cover all the bases. So, yes, this applies to every Christian. However, I don't think it mandates stepping out until, until reconciliation takes place, unless there's disobedience. But it does say every Christian should be quick to pursue reconciliation. But, and here's a big however... Big, however. However, Paul, the realist, said this in Romans 12, verse 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now that is, a, that is a, of course, Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But that is clearly a statement by a man who had had enough experience in life to know the reality. He says, if it is possible, implied, sometimes it is not possible. You, you can do everything, you, you can humble yourself and take responsibility and do everything that you can possibly do. And there's not a guarantee that you can be reconciled. Some people will not reconcile. I remember hearing Josh McDowell one time speaking, and I don't even know what the context was, but I remember him saying that he had hurt another brother uh, he had sinned against or hurt another brother, and he, he became aware of it, and he was, he was just crushed by that. And he went to this brother and he, in humility and just said, I am so sorry I hurt you. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? And the guy looked at him and said, no, I will not. Well, what do you do at that point? So now are you held captive to his unwillingness? to reconcile? In other words, now I can't serve the Lord, I can't do anything because he won't reconcile. Even though you've humbled yourself, you've shown humility and repentance and remorse and, and, and apologized and sought forgiveness. And that's why I believe Paul words this the way he does. If it is possible. And then he, again, adds this, as much as depends on you. That is, on your side of the equation, you, you do everything you can do to live peaceably with all men. But the sad reality is that sometimes that's not possible. 
And so, if you're asking, and I'm not sure by the way the question is worded, if you're asking, should someone in ministry step out of ministry until reconciliation has taken place, period, I would say no. Because you're saying there that reconciliation has to take place, and you're sort of assuming that that reconciliation can be forced on one side, and it can't. It takes two sides. So, no, I I don't think that, that Jesus teaching in Matthew 5 is saying that if there's somebody who has something against you, you have no business serving the Lord. Uh, But he is saying that if you haven't sought to make it right, if you haven't tried, if you haven't really, I like Paul's wording, as much as depends on you, he's really challenging us to do everything we can humanly, is go as far as we can. But you know, this is hard. This is really hard because the person who does as much as he can possibly do Usually, not always, but usually the reason a person will go to such extents is because it's a person with a sensitive conscience. And I'll tell you, it kills their, their conscience when they've done everything they can and they still can't be reconciled. That is really hard on, on people who, who have... Now, a person who doesn't have a sensitive conscience, they may just blow it off. But if you really want to be reconciled and everything possible on your side and you do everything you can and you can, you, the, the person won't reconcile, that is, that, is really, that is really a hard place to live in. But Paul's wording here lets us know that that's a possibility in life. So I hope that helps answer your question. Clearly, every Christian, regardless, should be quick to seek reconciliation. But the sad reality is you can't guarantee it will happen. Even if you do everything possible, on your side of the equation. And if that's the case, you need to to try to have a clear conscience before God and keep an open heart and mind to possible reconciliation. All right, let's stand as we close in prayer. Those, Those were all the questions and good ones. Once again, let's stand and close in prayer. Lord willing, we'll do this again next month. Father, thank you for our time together tonight and these uh, questions, uh, many of which really have some uh, real practical implications for us and practical applications for us. So may we take those to heart, especially, Father, we think of this last question. We want to be at peace with our brothers and sisters, and we want to do everything possible on our side of the ledger and trust that that there will be a softening of heart on the other side, Uh, but grant us the humility to do whatever we can. Uh, Grant us the grace, the, the repentance, And then if there's not reconciliation, as hard as that is, as difficult as that is, grant us still to maintain a tender heart, but a clear conscience to move forward in our walk with you. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.